Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael. Hello. Hi, Terry. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reflections, looking back on the gendered impact of COVID-19. So today we're going to be reviewing, starting with episode 96, Laura Ramirez of Affirm on decolonizing quote-unquote sex work. Episode 97, a survivor's story series with Carol and parenting with an abuser during COVID. Episode 99 with Martin Holtman on misogyny and masculinities and climate change denial. Episode 100, another survivor story with Nicole Lee on domestic abuse with a disability. Episode 101 with Nazir Afsal on COVID-19 or the coronavirus's impact on domestic violence. Episode 102 with Jen Camel on COVID-19's impact on pregnancy and reproductive rights. And finally, episode 108, Feminism in the Age of COVID-19 Conference on Domestic Violence. You know, let's start with the common thread that connects all of these episodes which is the gendered impact on COVID. We talked about this in the trailer episode before these series where we explored that women are gonna be disproportionately impacted, that women were more likely to be represented on the front lines as essential workers, as low-income workers, and that COVID and unemployment was gonna disproportionately impact them, childcare. But then these episodes really, I think, have a common lens of the gendered impact being negative and the negative impact being one I would characterize as violence, either physical violence, emotional violence, psychological violence, or economic violence. Let's start from that perspective. Has anything surprised you? I feel that these episodes have added a lot to the conversation. There's many things that I didn't consider before. I didn't consider, for example, Laura Ramirez's uh, conversation about prostitution and how it could uh, have its potential effect on that. I mean, when we're talking about feminism, it affects almost every single aspect of our lives. And so it's pretty hard to anticipate so many different factors. I'm glad you brought up Laura Ramirez. um, She's uh, an amazing activist and ally in this work. And I was so honored to be able to speak with her. So we talked about prostitution and pornography and COVID's impact on sex trafficking and prostitution. I'm curious, did you know anything about the debate within the feminist community around prostitution, those who support the equality or the Nordic model versus those who are trying to decriminalize both the selling and the purchasing of prostitution. Were you aware of this dichotomy, this debate? There were a lot of things that I wasn't aware of, and it took me it took me a while for me to understand a lot of these things. So like when I listened to her, I finally was able to put a couple of things together. I do remember that before I understood the argument of decriminalizing all prostitution in order to protect the women who are victims of it. And it made sense to me at the time, but then when I looked more into it and with the addition of what Laura was saying, and I was able to understand that 
both uh, the equality model wants to do the same thing, which is to protect the victims. And we don't want to put them in an even worse situation. So one of the things that really stood out to me, as Laura mentioned, is that we want to make sure that we understand that these are crimes that are happening to women, right? Or crimes that are happening to these victims. And it's not something that we should allow to happen to sort of help the perpetrators in sex trafficking, right? So we don't want to be helping the the, the pimps and, and take away accountability. Instead, we want to make sure we put a light on the abuses and be able to prosecute them and not, not let any of these perpetrators potentially use this to their advantage and to extend their, their, their power. I really appreciate that Laura w- was able to make it very clear in her language, characterizing the differences between those who want to make prostitution legal and decriminalize that, which the Nordic model and the equality model supports, versus those who want full decriminalization and want to be able to allow the purchasers of prostitution, the buyers, the pimps, um, the johns, so to speak, to not be prosecuted because they want to legitimize prostitution as a quote-unquote industry where prostitutes can be unionized, etc. And so she described the difference between those two as harm prevention, which is the equality model, and harm reduction, which is the full decriminalization model. And to me, I like that because, yes, if we know that people are going to be harmed by becoming prostituted, why would we want that? Why wouldn't we want to give them the option to be educated and and enabled, you know, equipped with skills to be able to earn a living, a living wage in other areas. And of course, that requires that we have enforcement of pay equity. We need to get rid of the gender pay gap. We need to get rid of the gender wealth gap. We need to get rid of the gender gap in so many areas. But to be able to say that, well, these people, the only thing that certain communities can use as a survival tool is to prostitute themselves, is to basically enslave themselves, and that we need to give them rights so that they can continue to be able to do that seems very coercive. Because if you're, if you have no other choice, that's not really a choice. You're not acting from a point of agency. And so I really am very frustrated with the community of people who call themselves feminist and don't believe that prostitution is a form of exploitation. Right. One of the things that crossed my mind when, when, you, when you were talking to um, her about it was maybe the comparison of legalizing every single drug, for example, right? Which I, I think that potentially has a, a lot of harm to it because let's say a corporation takes this, takes drugs, for example, let's say uh, cocaine, and advertises it to a way like cigarettes advertised for children or have advertised towards children uh, back in the day. And even I, I believe they still do that now. They'll take something harmful and be able to spread it even more. So that's, I think, another comparison that, that I kind of kind of put two and two together that like, can you imagine a large corporation like like not like Amazon, but something that just as powerful or a cigarette company that will traffic more and more women 
legally, like that would be, that would be just awful. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that we also talked about the intersection between trafficking and prostitution and pornography and how under COVID in certain parts of the world, like Australia, she gave the example where people, I mean, it's, I'm laughing, but, you know, out of absurdity, not because it's funny, people who are going to prostitutes are demanding mass. And yet there might not be that same level of care with regard to prophylactics, right? And other ways of ensuring that those who are prostituted are not susceptible to STDs. So on the one hand, they still want to go and protect themselves, but it's not this mutual consideration that they're giving, you know, to the person who's providing the quote unquote service. So it's so similar to what's happening when it comes to essential workers, right? Grocery store workers or retail workers, where people are saying, I demand to go into the store. And if you make me wear a mask, then I'm going to boycott your store. But it's almost like, well, you're not allowed to wear a mask but then the reverse is, it's kind of the reverse, the inverse, where if you wear a mask to protect yourself, I don't want to, I'm going to, you know, make myself a risk to you. And, and similarly, like they're protecting themselves in prostitution by wearing a mask or demanding, you know, that the woman wear or the prostitute wears a mask, but then they don't care about the, the risk of disease. It's just r- ridiculous to me. I mean, especially when it comes to prostitution, I feel like they use women as just just tools. Like they don't care. It's like using a pencil. You don't care what happens to the pencil. Like they don't care what happens uh, to the one. They they don't treat them as a person. I think a lot a lot of times. I don't know if you saw this video online where this guy went into a Costco and he's recording the employee, the Costco employee. Um, asking him to wear a mask and, and he's going to refuse service if he doesn't wear a mask. And he's just really nasty to this employee and the employee takes away his cart. Um, and he just, he feels, it looks like he, he somehow feels victorious that he's doing this because he's himself recording this and putting it online. And he, he it just, just, he looks so ridiculous. He just doesn't care about the, the, the person that he's talking to. It seems like he only cares about himself. So I think this is just, this just highlights that. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. Um, it seems that um, every episode gave us an opportunity to explore that a little bit more um, because sometimes we are able to see how um, abusers will uh, change their tactics uh, based on this new situation and how they use both psychological and actual violence to um, inflict on their victims, right? And it seems, I agree, that women are disproportionately affected. It seems that um, they seem to be the ones that, not just in the household, but also in the environment, that uh, they, they, we, well, society as a whole has, um, has put them in a disadvantage. Uh, both, but I think also that uh, this sort of highlights some of the issues that have happened that have been occurring before COVID. Right? I think I think COVID has exposed a lot of the ugly truth of this abuse and this violence that you just mentioned. 
basically the fact that women, despite being half of the world's population, don't have equal rights under the Constitution in this country. And how that translates into policy is we have a very, very clear and large gender pay gap, which then exacerbates a gender wealth gap. There is not affordable health care, not affordable child care. And so when you have that situation, like you were saying, and a crisis occurs, then those disparities become even more pronounced. And so let's start with Carol, for example, and parenting with an abuser. So when you are in a system where the the courts and law enforcement have already systemically not listened to and not believed survivors of domestic violence, and then a crisis happens, that's usually an opportunity for someone to exploit that to their advantage. So with Carol, her former husband who abused her works in healthcare, and he started using the circumstances of COVID to put herself, who is immunocompromised, at health risk by putting their kids deliberately in daycare and while she is available to actually watch them. So that was, I think, to many people, that kind of tactic doesn't seem like it's a big deal. It might seem innocent. But when you're someone who is really worried about staying healthy so you could watch and take care of your children and your quote-unquote co-parent is not only not letting you see your child during a time when you can, but putting them in daycare where there aren't the same level of precautions health-wise and actually says, I don't care if you get sick. That seems like a deliberate, if not malicious, act towards someone who has been victimized. Absolutely. I do think that there is a big uh, section of the population that would look at this and be appalled by this kind of behavior. I mean, this man was a person who worked in the healthcare industry, and he had an increased exposure to the virus. She mentioned that when they would meet up, he would go and uh, to the visits with scrubs on. And so it kind of indicates that you may be contaminated and you're, you may be spreading it, right? And on top of that, it's not just the physical act of, 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 of him possibly being exposed, but it's also his, his attitude. Like you just mentioned, he did say, I don't care if you get... Uh, if you get it, you're going to get everybody's going to get it anyways, which is something that may not necessarily be true. He has like this kind of attitude that a lot of other people have, like, oh, wearing the mask is like taking away my freedom. Right. Which is seen not just through him, but a whole bunch of other people in the media that I've seen. And also just walking down the street. Typically, it's more likely for me to see white males not wearing their masks and not really caring about social distancing, while everyone else in general, and not, not all white males, but it seems like that's the, the population that I see most that doesn't seem to care as much. But it is a very real danger. And I do think that I do think it, uh, different people will take a look at it in different ways. Like, for example, even though that's a healthcare worker that didn't seem to care, I have a friend, for example, that is a nurse and, and she takes several steps to make sure that she doesn't uh, infect her family, right? So even though she goes to work four times a week, basically now, which is more than normal, she goes into a separate room. She stays in a separate room from the rest of her family so she doesn't possibly contaminate the rest of her household. So she has parents that are a little bit older. 
I just want to make a correction with Carol's ex-husband because I believe the Scrubs example was when they were married and he and he would come home and she had asked him to take the Scrubs off and he didn't. And it wasn't in any situation currently, unless you remember that he was wearing scrubs to the police station where they're doing exchanges. Because the only time they connect is on the poli- is at the police station. Otherwise, she picks up the kids at the daycare center. I believe that that's what she said. Yeah, I remember you mentioning your friend, the nurse. So there is like a little bit of a gendered difference in how people are responding to this cry for collective care. There's this sense of entitlement that seems to show up mainly, you know, along gendered lines where men are feeling like they can't breathe and their freedoms are being infringed upon, whereas they're not asked in society as often as women are to think about other people. And so women are more likely probably because we're socialized to be be amenable to making these kinds of sacrifices. Right. I, I guess society tells them to be more, to compromise more feel like that's the case. Thinking back on the previous episodes around the gendering of girls, Tom Digby's episode, you know, where we're we're socialized to be caretakers, we're socialized to sacrifice ourselves, to put other people's needs ahead of ours. Yeah, so this is actually a good segue into our next episode, 99, with Martin Holtman, a researcher based out of Sweden. And his research is on misogyny and masculinities on climate change denial. So he has these three archetypes of masculinity, the industrial breadwinner, the eco-modern male, and, and then finally a new masculinity that he proposes called the ecological masculinity, which is a response to the former two. So let's talk about these two archetypes, the industrial breadwinner and the eco-modern male, basically archetypes that define men as being in charge and having to take care of women, uh, provide, and how these archetypes actually form an ideological basis for men who adhere to them to be more likely to engage in climate change denial. Right. Yeah. So these are these are uh, ways of looking at these these groups that they tend to be white males and they seem to be more privileged or, or what we would consider privileged to have this type of archetype. Yeah. So there's this that there's a strong influence of extremist views such as sexism and far right nationalism that connects these men in their reluctance to believe in the climate crisis and act and take any action. Huntsman uh, mentioned that there is a lot of this binary thinking where there's male versus female. And uh, it's something that he feels that we shouldn't be thinking of, of how we relate to each other in such a binary, ter- in binary terms. It seems like we fit more in a spectrum and that seems to be more useful. Yeah. And I think that's kind of one of the tenets of feminism, isn't it? That the gender binary, which is imposed by patriarchy polices us to fit into this box that doesn't allow us to be fully embodied as human beings, to be our best selves, to self-actualize, to explore moving outside of that binary and all the different ways in which our interests and our passions might align with the other gender. And, and so, you know, that it's that binary that um, forms the basis also of Martin's 
um, intersection with ecofeminism that there's this connection between climate change denial and sexism and misogyny because both are rooted in understanding that men's power and privilege is used to assert itself over women in the same way that it's used to assert itself and dominate nature. Right. And I would say also even other men, right? They use these kind of tactics of find ways to dominate both men, nature, and, and women. Yeah, you know, that's actually something that comes up later. But the, the premise of patriarchy and male supremacy is that men use their power and privilege to assert dominance over women, but also they assert dominance over other men. And the other men are men who maybe not are adhering to the gender binary, men who are more effeminate. They could be someone who is overtly displaying feminine, quote unquote, feminine qualities like caring and compassion. You know, maybe they're not playing sports, team sports. Maybe they like, these are stereotypes, but they like hanging out with girls. They like talking about their feelings. They like reading, doing things that are more reflective and not action oriented and competitive. Right. And one of the things that he mentioned is uh, the group of men that outright reject that, that kind of male, like like uh, he mentioned the incel community, right, where they take these these thoughts that maybe they should have this dominance over women. And, and we blame the woman if they are not chosen to be their mate. Right. So that's it's just, it's just kind of this community that engenders this hate and anger. So victim blaming is definitely one of the ways in which sexism and misogyny manifests itself as a symptom in society. So incels, for listeners who haven't heard of the term, stands for involuntarily celibate. So men who basically are not able to date, have a relationship, victim blame the women because, and sometimes they victim blame the women and the men that they're dating. Maybe the men that they're dating are more attractive or have more status or are traditionally more masculine in appearance and have appearances that are more valued by society. And so these incels blame both definitely the women and sometimes the men that they're dating for them not being able to be uh, sexually active. And then they act out on their celibacy by potentially engaging in threats or threats of violence or violence themselves. So lots of mass shooters belong to incel communities, for example. Right. I was going to mention that, that a lot of mass shooters have identified as incels. In fact, there is a lot of right-wing violence that has that happens here in the in the United States. It seems like there is much more right-wing violence than any other kind of violence, and even terrorism, like uh, Islamic terrorism, and the overwhelming type of violence, political violence, is right-wing. With regard to right-wing extremists, yes, the um, Southern Poverty Law Center has definitely identified right-wing extremists and white supremacists as one of the biggest domestic threats, domestic terrorist groups in this country, but under the Trump administration, they have downplayed their role and have refused to actually take any action to do anything about them, to deter, to devote resources to catching them and criminalizing their behavior and convicting them. Right. We've seen from the protests, it seems like our leaders sort of have this apologetic, making themselves out to be the victim kind of attitude. 
I wait, wait. I have to stop you. Apologetic. So let's let's be careful with the words we use because it's performative apologi- apologies are not really apologetic, right? Yeah, you're. I just want to be careful when people hear that word that they don't actually think that there's sincerity behind it. I think it's more an act of deflection. And, you know, we, we hear, we've now, hopefully, everybody in this country has, for the past several years, become uh, familiar with the term gaslighting, which is an abuser tactic, right? Like making you believe that what you see and experience, um, you know, through your senses is not actually what is fact. Um, and so, you know, being apologetic when it's not sincere is really being intentionally, I think, deceptive. Yeah, it is. I would agree. <laughs> you know, you're, you're right. Uh, what I meant was to say was like basically sometimes see themselves as the victim and claim that they are being harmed as well. Right. And I and I think for anybody who this a part of the goal of this podcast is to build where you were using the phrase again, build a cultural literacy around abuse and abuse of power so that wherever that abuse is manifest, you can make connections and identify it and confront it, prevent it and hopefully heal from it in other spaces as well. So as a survivor of domestic violence and coercive control, you know, still ongoing survivor, I see those behaviors as that both sideism tactic as something that shows up in family court a lot, right? Or it shows up in the criminal justice system, like with rape. Like, well, it's he said, she said, we don't know what happened. Or survivors in family court, he said, she said, we don't know if she's really a domestic violence victim. We don't know if she's making up the accusations around the children being abused as well. Well, you can know if you apply a power lens, a gendered power lens. You can see who has power, how are they using the power, how is the power being asserted to either limit or expand or give access to the other party to agency? And you can't have agency in sharing your story, for example, as a rape victim survivor, if you're afraid of losing your job, if you're afraid that your community is going to ostracize you if you're afraid that you're going to be kicked out of your dorm. And so those kinds of power analysis can actually help with the both sideism because for example when you were talking about, you know, both sideism with extremists and saying that they're being victimized, well, if they are in positions of power, they aren't being victimized, they have privilege and what they're doing is actually protecting their privilege. And so that is not a both sideism situation if we actually take a deeper analysis. Well, I would say that you and I see that. And I think most, most listeners would see that, yes, these Nazis basically are the ones in power because they, they're privileged, right? The way I, I believe maybe the average person out there looks at it is, well, there's a group, there's the other side. What about the, the, the reason that they're behaving this way is because they're being antagonized by, they, and, and again, they use the word Antifa as this, this like boogeyman that's hurting them and they have to defend themselves. So then they are making themselves out to be the victim, thus changing the power dynamic, saying that that's the real threat. That's, the, that's what we're in power. We ourselves, we're, we're not in power. So I think, I think that's the narrative that they try to build. So when you say they're ch- making themselves be the victim, casting them- themselves as the victim and changing the power dynamic, 
The power dynamic doesn't change just because you change the narrative. If you have the right lens for analyzing, the power dynamic only changes if you accept as truth what the people who are pushing that narrative say. So this is why we need like independent critical thinking as a skill that we develop in this country and all over the world because people who are trying to manipulate you into believing their side of the story or coerce you. It's easy to see through once you've had, like, as a survivor, I feel like I have a strong radar for detecting bullshit, a BS, and you know, <laughs> radar.、Right. And I also have a strong radar for identifying when someone is abusing power because I feel power so acutely. And in many situations, I feel the power dynamics. If I'm not in a position of power, I'm if I'm in a lesser position. I recognize it and I feel it. And when someone is、um, trying to take advantage of that disparity, I see it and feel it right away. You know, even to the extent that it affects my body, it's a, it's a visceral reaction to abuse of power. Yeah, and I do see that. I I just think that sometimes other people, like I would say, a lot of other people on the right, because see, I do speak to、uh, as many people as possible, and I feel that a lot of the misinformation makes them feel the way you do, but for the wrong reasons, because they're not really putting a critical lens, but like they should. I bring up the example because, for example, I have a friend who saw the the case with、uh, Rashard Brooks, where they felt. That and I and I feel incorrectly that Rashard Brooks was a powerful man that was threatening the life of these two officers, and the two officers' lives were in danger, and they had to. And according to this person, they behaved professionally by shooting this powerful black man. For the audio,、uh, the listeners, Rashard Brooks, if you don't know, is a black man who was shot at Wendy's. So. What is the race or ethnicity of this person who has these beliefs? As our mutual friend Michelle always asks, what color is this person? <laughs> Italian American. White. Identifies、yes. as white.、Yes. As the、uh, which, by the way, Italians very strong affinity with、um, police in terms of yeah, family members. Thing,、yeah. I'm guessing have police officers, family、Absolutely. members, police officers, and family members, and, and of course.、Yes. So there's already a very biased lens because they're of the group, not because they're police officers, but because they're of the group who has the power, who's abusing power, and who is benefiting from a system of qualified immunity, who gives them impunity to abuse the power without any accountability, and so. When you're speaking from a lens of listening and being, you know, a family member or the the network of friends of someone who gets away with whatever they want and has basically done so, that I think is not a, a by is not an impartial person. It's kind of like you know, I don't know, in was it in Arizona or one of the southwestern states? The police officers resigned in protest when the state or the、right. municipality got rid of qualified immunity, and so the idea was, if I can't get away with police brutality, then I don't want to have my job anymore. There's no other job in the world that has that level of power. Like every job in the world, in theory, if you have done something wrong against the law, you've broken a code of conduct. 
you're going to be held accountable. You're going to be fired. There's going to be some sort of corrective action. The board may vote you out if you're on a publicly traded company. There's some kind of consequence. And if there's never any consequence and they are resigning out of protest, they're resigning because they want to be able to continue to abuse power. Right. But to them, I feel like that is the norm. And anything that happens against the norm is a threat to their power. I do feel that they, they do think that they, they're the victim. They feel threatened. Let's move this conversation on to the next episode, which is 100, our Survivor Story series with Nicole Lee, a survivor in Australia who had disabilities. And since we're talking about the, converse, the topic of police officers, it was actually a police officer that she dealt with in Australia who said to her, you know, he's not going to change. You need to leave. Mm-hmm. And the safest place for you is not with him. And what they did in Australia, which they're actually, they've done tests in New Zealand as well for, which I think should be the case everywhere in the world, is when someone is being abused, they take the abuser out of the home. And so that's what happened to her. They took the abuser out of the home and put him in jail. And she was able to access, to her surprise, lots of services that Australia had for survivors with disabilities. Right. So I I feel like in the United States, um, women's lives are even more in danger than they are in other places. So in Australia, this is something that was really good. And I, I, I hope that more and more countries and hopefully it doesn't seem like that's we're get anywhere near here in the United States to get to the point to get to the point that Australia is when it comes to protecting domestic violence survivors. If I didn't talk, tell you that this happened to Nicole, what would be your, in your mind, if you thought about a couple in a situation where one person was being abused at home, how would you, regardless of what your framework is for understanding criminal justice, how would you think is the best way to respond to that kind of situation, that crisis? If there is abuse in a household, I do feel that we should be able to empower the victim to give them the resources in order to, to, for the safety of herself and the children or the victim, like whether they be male or female. So let me ask you this. Does empowerment, in your view, entail taking the victim away and putting that person and her children potentially in shelter, in homeless shelters? Or does it mean something else? That she lived in a home that was owned by her because her parents gifted her the home. But um, something happened along the way. Either way, like I feel that it was much better for the perpetrator to be taken away because, again, she didn't do anything to deserve to be taken away from her home and her children, right? This is what she's used to. And this is something that, you know, giving her uh, resources and, and, and financial assistance to, to help her with, with taking care of her children, I feel was the best goal. It was the best. So uh, are you saying that if the house was under the husband's name, that he, he should stay? No, 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 no. I, okay. No. I was just trying to get clarity around the, the, why you brought up the point of who, who owned the home. Well, in this, in this particular case, I feel like she was established. She didn't do anything wrong. In fact, she was the victim. So in order to empower her, it would be best for her to continue living and being protected. Um, as, as long so, as- but that's not the model all across this country. No one's taking the men, the, the alleged abuser, out of the home, in theory, and putting them in jail. 
if necessary, putting the women in shelters, women and children in shelters, and taking them out of the home and disrupting their lives. And、right. that's why this case was so unique, I think, because this concept that we remove women and disrupt the victims it has been so normalized. It's like another form of added trauma that we can't、right. even envision. The concept that she should stay and the abuser should be going to jail. I mean, even she thought that this was another trauma. I think one of the things that happened as soon as、um, he was taken away was that、uh, she was worried and she was asking for them to bring him back because she felt that she couldn't survive without him financially and and also not just financially, but he took care of her in many ways and 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 she was just so used to. Uh, using him as 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 a survival for survival for her survival and safety of her children that she couldn't imagine anything else and she was just not informed of the resources that were available so her I'm I'm glad that it happened she was able to be offered those resources and that information so this isn't the norm the norm of taking the abuser away from the home that's not the norm in the U S. They've done studies as to whether or not it's better to remove the domestic violence perpetrators than the victims, and one study came out from Massey University, which is, I believe, in, in、uh, New Zealand.、Uh, it was a five-year study. The result is that it is better to remove domestic violence perpetrators than victims, which to me is laughable that we even need to have a study to test that out. Which I is something, and and again, because I don't know a lot of these things, I don't understand why in those cases the perpetrator isn't arrested. I, I say this because I don't know what, when it comes to accountability, why is it that a lot of abusers aren't held to to a standard where they have to go to jail or they have to get legal consequences. So, for example,、um, recently I'm, I'm involved in like a.、Uh, Video game community, right? This particular community—it's—it's it's a competitive video game where there is a mixture of adults and children, and this kind of mixture sort of leads itself to a lot of abuse, a lot of child abuse. Recently, it came out that a lot of these top players that a lot of people admire have been accused of inappropriate conduct with children and many cases of rape. But it seems like wait, how are they raping them if everybody's virtual? Well, not recently. The this has come out now recently. The, the accusations, but the community usually is where people go to tournaments in person, right? Oh, so there's an actual. It's kind of like Comic Con. So people are assembling in person and during the time. But if they're minors there, aren't they with their parents? How are they getting access to these children? And that's the problem because this is a this is sort of a community where both adult it's a video game right so children play the game and adults happen to be there and these children many of the times are not supervised there's no rule that says you you must come accompanied with an adult right like this is something that creates this culture of abuse like there's a lot of people and even top players right they not only do they even if they don't do it themselves they know about these things going on and also. There's like they bring alcohol into the situation, right? And sometimes these tournaments are so big, and there are multiple days that they go into hotel rooms, and so they go together in a group and they pay for hotel rooms and they stay with each other. And so a lot of this abuse happens both in the tournament and in these social events outside of the hotel room. So I, I want to wait. So I want to ask you something. From your knowledge, are these top players playing? 
as a tactic so they have access to children in order to engage in predation or do they is that like a secondary benefit but their first joy is video gaming or is it a cover these top players are very good at the video game uh, at this video game and so they must practice a lot i think they also happen to be predators and it's also the culture right there are a lot of adults in this community that just they, they they may not be playing the video game very well or anything. And their main goal is probably to abuse children and use this breeding as a breeding ground to abuse children and women, too. Not just because when it comes to video games, most in this particular video game, it seems like most of the population are men. So if a, a female wants to get into this, um, they're going to have to deal with a lot of abuse and a lot of not not just sexual uh, assault, but also disparaging comments and everything, because that's just like sort of the culture that these people breed. So I, I think that while there are men that use this use this use this as an uh, an opportunity for them to abuse. I do think that a lot of the top players who have been accused, and, and there have been a lot of top players that have been accused, I don't know if that's their primary goal. Again, I find it very difficult for somebody to be very good at a video game and not have that be their primary uh, reason for doing this. But there are a lot of people, I'm sure, that go to these places specifically to abuse children. I do think that that's the Do you feel comfortable sharing what game this is or what conference or tournament? Sure. Is it, um, is it is it in the news so we could look it up? So this is not very niche. Uh, I mean, this is kind of this is big on Twitter right now uh, for Super Smash Brothers, the Super Smash Brothers community. The point that I was trying to make was that a lot of these players seem to be just disappearing, and there is no legal action against them. They just disappear. They're out of the community. But I think that the, the this type of culture is still there. I thought you, uh, so they're not disappearing because they're being arrested and put right, in jail. They're not, dis- they're not disappearing because they're being arrested and taken to jail. They're just disappearing because, well, they're getting a lot of this negative attention, obviously. So they just disappear. They just disappear. But as, as what I hear and what a lot of people who are speaking out, who are part of the community, because there are people who are part of the community who do speak out, who have listed these people uh, and, 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 and stated, all right, these, this is what, what, what's going on right now. A lot of them... Okay, there's, yeah, so a lot of them tell us what's going on, because this isn't the first time that this has happened. There have been people in the past that have been caught uh, doing horrible things, but they do not receive legal consequences. So that's what my question is, like, how come in college, just like over here, in this situation, why is it that legal action isn't taken against these abusers? Well, I can answer to some extent, but not fully. I don't know enough about it. But I think that in general, like the percentage of rape as well as domestic violence convictions is so low. It's like less than 3%. And part of it is because we were talking earlier about this, like both sideism, this he said, she said, like to me, it's not a he said, she said, if you give me someone to interview, I can uh, have a good sense <laughs> and feel confident if I know that they're, they've been traumatized and abuse of power has been enacted upon them. And and uh, and so there's, you know, a lot of cases like with rape, there's maybe lack of evidence. You know, there's a whole crisis in our country where rape kids are not being tested. There's a backlog. Part of it is prosecute prosecute misconduct where they're just reluctant, they have run out of money, they don't feel like they should run the rape kit if there's not enough strong evidence, if the rape victim doesn't want to testify because she feels afraid or coerced, you know, out of it, maybe, you know, threats or other kinds of threats 
on her life or livelihood. Maybe her community, her family is being threatened as well. And so there's a lot of risk in coming out and asking for accountability through the system as a rape victim. And similarly for domestic violence, the problem with domestic violence is that people don't define domestic violence holistically, which is why we're working, the Engendered Collective is working on trying to criminalize coercive control and shift the language around how we view domestic violence to really mobilize against dominant narratives of domestic violence, which is cast as mainly physical, as not a gendered liberty crime, as not this whole set of behaviors that keep someone from doing for themselves. Like what Nicole said in her story with her abuser, where she was physically unable to care for herself, but also psychologically put into a position, tapped the her abuser tapped into her self-worth to make her not believe that she could care for herself and her children. I also think that one of the things that adds to that is how her husband was he, she, he took on the role of the caregiver and by, and he also was a cancer survivor. So he was a cancer survivor. And to the eyes of everyone else, he seemed like a hero. He seemed like, like someone that is trustworthy. And so I guess that probably would, would lead into people maybe not believing her as much. You know, but the, the, the details don't even matter. Like in that case, he's a cancer survivor and he was physically, you know, m- more the caretaker for her than she for him. And yet in other scenarios, in heterosexual couples, the male is more likely, potentially the higher wage earner, more likely to be someone of a greater socioeconomic status. And so those kinds of built-in biases are already there. And it's just whether or not we choose to let it give it any weight when we're analyzing the situation in terms of accountability. And people, thankfully, in Nicole's network of um, supporters, didn't give it any weight. The police officer was the one who took the, you know, her abuser out of the home and said that he's not going to change. And she, I, one thing that I really, 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 really liked about what Nicole said, which I think is so important for us to hear, is that the police officer did not take her decision away from her. He took the decision from her husband to exactly. abuse her. And too many people who are working in this space want to give a nod to the survivor's agency and free will and give her a chance to make a choice and if she wants to stay or not and when you're in that situation as she said she did everything to please him you don't have a choice you there's no agency when there's oppression or threat of violence and so we need to be able to act on behalf of survivors and have policy that actually center accountability which leads us perfectly into the next episode 101 with Nazir Afsal because he is someone who's been a prosecutor for over 20 years in England and Britain and I was so pleased to be able to talk to someone working in the space who really got it because he's actually sees uh, and is doing something about sexism and misogyny And using that as potentially, you know, right now the domestic violence bill, domestic abuse bill in Britain is being reconceptualized. There's an update to the bill that's being proposed. And one of the updates is that sexism and misogyny should be characterized as a hate crime. Absolutely. And so, you know, when when Nazir said, 
that the common denominator between gangs and you know right-wing extremists, Islamic extremists, uh, mass shooters, and all these other individuals who engage in long-term systemic violence and domestic violence is that they have a hatred of women. And yeah. if, you, if you nip it in the bud, then they won't go out and commit these other crimes. So that was something that I felt was refreshing to hear from him. And I want to hear from you. Was that something new to you when you heard that? What did you think and how did you respond? Similar to the conversation that you had with Holtzman, it seems like it makes more sense for us to address the issue before it happens, right? Afterward, right? So when you're taking a look at the core issue, which is misogyny, that's what we should be addressing. And that's how, how we can hopefully address the problem better. So yeah, was that new? Um, that was something that I wouldn't have been able to even understand without, without this podcast. I think this is something that opened my eyes a lot. I also wanted to say when it comes to Nazir, the two of you spoke about how that sex ring investigation that he was part of and how it, it wasn't being addressed appropriately before he joined in. And I think he understands the power dynamics, right? He understands that the victims that didn't have power. And I, I think before the before him, the investigation, uh, the investigators blamed a lot of the victims. They blamed the socioeconomic status of the victims and how they were, um, this was probably why they were in this kind of situation. And I think he was able to open up this investigation with that kind of lens, that understanding that there's a imbalance. Well, I also think that what, what was very important is that people were reluctant to bring forward charges against the, the gangs because they were South Asian and Muslim, and they didn't want to be accused of targeting South Asians and Muslims, while the victims sometimes were white, but other, you know, other different colors of victims existed. And so because Nazir is South Asian, of South Asian descent and Muslim, he gave permission to overlook some of the political aspects of bringing forth a case. Okay, that makes sense. So diversity in this case, again, helps with with bringing justice. It's also a problem because if it's kind of like what's happening in domestic violence in New York, you know, and Nazir talked about this too, that you can't have restorative justice for domestic violence cases as an alternative to incarceration. I don't mean restorative justice as a practice just for victims, for healing and positive transformation, but restorative justice is being offered as an alternative to incarceration, which in itself is coercive when there has been no accountability. And they're trying to use restorative justice as a way to generate accountability by giving abusers the opportunity to quote unquote, engage in retribution. But if they've never been held accountable to, to deter them from engaging in those behaviors, then anything they say about being sorry may not be sincere and is likely not sincere. And so sure. I bring that up because when it when it came to you know them the in the gang case in Britain not moving forward because they didn't want to be accused of being racist and islamophobic that is similar to what's happening in New York where prosecutors are saying there're too many black and brown men in jail because of mass incarceration which is true there are for nonviolent crimes that's you know the history of our 
mass incarceration has to do with the crime bills from the 80s and 90s, and that's a problem. But on the other hand, that's just a symptom of the problem. And if we address the problem at its root core, at its cause, which is having policies that make all abusers accountable, not just black and brown abusers, then all colors of abusers will be deterred. And so they're reluctant to actually put more black and brown men in prison because they don't want to be exacerbating the racism problem in criminal justice. But by doing so, they're harming survivors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that there is a reason why there are there's so much black population is higher. I think there's something like over 40 percent of the prison population is black or Hispanic or possibly more. So it seems that I mean, yeah, those issues have to be addressed. There's the the fact that policing is much higher in low income places and that we are segregated so much, especially in a place like in New York. Right. There's so many issues that need to be addressed when it comes to both policing and incarceration. I think this is a I mean, with with Nazir, this is uh, somewhere that's not from here. And it's interesting to get the perspective from uh, Britain. Uh, a location that is, I see, I, in my opinion, like as foreign to me, and to understand that it seems like racism also is an issue over there as well. There's so much that I don't know that I've, I'm curious to find out, like what the incarceration rate is in, in Britain. I'm pretty sure that since the United States has the highest amount of prisoners, I wonder how that is dealt in the in Britain and in other countries. <laughs> I think that's something we should definitely look into and include in our show notes. But I do think that. Even though there's a lot of similarity in terms of the problems and challenges that we face, obviously racism exists in both countries, and, but at least Britain has Britain, England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, they've all criminalized coercive control. So they are the model, and at least theoretically, understanding that abuse needs to be looked at holistically, there needs to be a set of behaviors that helps to identify who is the perpetrator, who is the victim. And whether or not it's being implemented effectively, and if the sentencing is proportionate to what crimes are in order to really create long-term deterrence, that remains to be seen. But clearly, there's an updated domestic abuse bill that's being proposed that's trying to strengthen that and make it more effective. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But they certainly are further ahead, if Nazir is any example, because there's an understanding of the cultural factors that play into abuse. And, and I think that without that cultural understanding of sexism and misogyny's role, until we acknowledge it, we're not going to be able to actually do anything about it in policy. Right. Which brings us to the next episode, 102, with Jen Camel, who talks about the gendered impact of COVID on pregnancy and reproductive rights. And you may recall our conversation with Indra Lucero of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women and and all of the cases across the country where your pregnancy or pregnancy outcome can be used against you and you could be arrested and, you know, placed in jail because you had a miscarriage and you're because a fetus has personhood in your state, you could be you could be blamed for it. And so these gendered impacts have been even more exacerbated, according to Jen, 
under COVID, according to Jen, because every hospital and every state is making its own rules around how to deal with pregnancy and reproductive rights. What struck me was how COVID gave this, it helped us look at a situation that was already an issue before the pandemic happened. So what a lot of people now were looking into is having having midwives uh, help deliver the child, right? That was something that, for example, my sister looked into before she gave birth at a birthing center. But again, there's a lot of... Uh, misinformation like Jen mentioned and a lot of a lot of policy that needs to be addressed. Again, looking at having a midwife, for example, is something that's relatively safe. Even years ago, it was something that was the norm. Having a midwife was sort of phased out. And, and there was this whole belief that now if you're not at a hospital, you're not going to have a safe pregnancy, right? Or not going to be able to deliver safely. So now that, that COVID happened, and going to a hospital would potentially expose you more to the um, to the virus that we can now rethink that. So that's one of the things that I found striking. Yeah, and I and I think that for me, talking about midwives and the VBAC uh, vaginal birth after cesarean, which is Jen's specialty, there's so much that I learned about VBACs and just how corporatized the business of pregnancy and delivery is, right. but also in connection with our conversation with Indra and also the conversation we had in, in reviewing the book, You're Doing It Wrong, which is the history of motherhood in our country. These interviews and episodes really, I think, give a broad stroke framework for understanding how women's bodies, the way we have constructed meaning and value to women's bodies, who um, has a right to control them, whether it's the state, you know, or the woman or anybody else, has really been something that's harmful to women. And, and now it seems like it's insurance companies and hospitals that own our bodies and get to decide because even the concept of midwives, you have to have a supply first of Mm -hmm. people you have to then even if when you do have a supply you have to be able to pay for it and if it's not covered under insurance and someone doesn't have the means then it's not going to be an option it's going to be precluded and then you're going to go with whatever your insurance company if you have any offers you which is probably going to be something that's going to minimize liability and put you and your health secondary to their cost and convenience Absolutely. And it seems like a lot of the the weight and the pressure of doing the research is now on the person giving birth. And one of the things that Jen mentioned was how at the time that you're pregnant, there's not really a lot of time or energy that you should be putting into something like this. It's, it's something that should be thought of before and planned out. So it's it's probably a stressful time to be thinking about this, but it's it's so important at the same time. Let's talk about our final episode, which is 108. I was participating in a panel discussion with the Continuum Collective co-produced episode, and the topic was feminism in the age of COVID. And our particular topic was how does feminism impact domestic violence and domestic violence survivors? For me, I I think that the the approach that I have is COVID, like you said, repeatedly throughout our conversation today, hopefully exposes 
the existing disparities and harms that women suffer mm-hmm. in healthcare and economic sense, in terms of housing, in terms of safety in their relationships, access to services, access to paths towards freedom and security. And, and so what I would like COVID to do in terms of impacting feminism is ignite more women and men, male allies of feminism to actually take action so that they can see how all of these harms that impact women actually also impact men and impact all of us. I would basically want this experience to bring us all together and become either feminist or pro-feminist allies and engaged in this conversation. That's my goal. Yeah, I I share that. I I do want to do that as well. I want to um, make sure that the conversation just doesn't end here and that I talk about it with people that I know. Um, One of the things that I like to do is um, share this information with uh, friends of mine, although it's not something that is always easy. I have a friend, for example, was telling me about an issue that he was having with his partner. And during the conversation, I realized that he was using an abuser tactic. In in this particular case, it was gaslighting. And I brought it up to him in a way that I felt was gentle, but I did want to let him know that it was something that he shouldn't be doing, right? At the end of the conversation, he didn't want to speak more about it. And it seemed he seemed threatened by it. But I, I do feel that regardless, I feel that we should still continue to talk more openly. I know that that's something else that Nazir mentioned, right? He, about when it comes to when you're seeing some uh, something that you feel uncomfortable with and you have uh, the knowledge to, to call it out, you should, and you shouldn't just stand there passively. And I hope that eventually by opening up these conversations, we're able to spread the knowledge and hopefully reduce it a little bit, at least. I think that um, it's something that's happening all over the world. It's pretty bad in, in the United States. But as we saw in this episode, Fariba did talk about it at how it happens in Turkey and how people in Turkey themselves are forming groups in order to address these issues. I'm curious, when you had your conversation with your friend, first of all, in terms of the power analysis, I'm guessing, but if you could confirm, there's definitely a power differential, right? And he has, in some Uh, ways, more power than I'm guessing his partner. That's why you are using it as an abuser tactic, because to identify that, there has to be a power imbalance. Yeah. Okay. And how did he respond when you identified this behavior? Did you use terms to show the harm and the impact? Well, I did use the word gaslighting because I felt that he also understands what that word is. And when I explained that that's a negative thing, he he did change the subject and he didn't, he closed up. He didn't want to, he didn't want to talk. He shut down. Shut down. Right. So when I, when I brought it up again, he goes, ah, blah, blah, blah. And, and again, it's, it's more, I do at least think that he is thought about it. And I also brought it up afterward over text like hey how's the situation going and he said something like along the lines of like oh you're funny man and then he just didn't want to he didn't want (laughs) to well michael may i suggest for next time because when people are confronted with their own abusive power there's going to be it's kind of like white privilege there's there's guilt and shame potentially attached to it and so it might be 
helpful to try next time to see if you can talk about the harm and the impact. So ask him, for example, if he's going to open up to you again. You know, how did your partner feel? What was her reaction? If she cried, if she looked confused, puzzled, if she didn't speak, if she silenced herself, those kinds of behaviors can indicate that she was not comfortable. And so you can ask him, what was your intent, and how did this intent align with the result that you got? Do you think that she understood you? Do you think that I'm guessing the partner is female?、Um, and so, what what's have a sort of conversation? I think that helps to get him to think about the dynamics of the power, rather than calling it out directly, because I think calling it out directly is really hard for someone to receive who doesn't have a lens already for understanding、right. it. Like you, if you were to be in a relationship and you came to me and you said certain things, I would say, "Hey, that doesn't sound right." You know that that seems kind of manipulative, and I and I would feel comfortable that you would be able to receive that openly and. Right, because I understand language and I understand where. And I know that you wouldn't be threatened because I know who you are. Right. But I wouldn't use potentially that language with someone who's not familiar, who hasn't actually examined and engaged in an ongoing process of self inquiry about what their power is and how they're using it or how they're misusing it. So basically. Do the Socratic method and kind of ask questions to help him identify where he possibly went wrong and how he affected his partner in a negative way. I would not use the word wrong in describing it because you want you want the person to be open and to characterize it with their own words. Okay, and to not impose your imprint on your friend. Um, because that's the whole point. He's the one who observed. He had a certain intention in whatever he was trying to say. I want her to go to, you know, this trip with me, or I want her to go every week to my mom's home to have dinner Sunday nights. She doesn't want to because blah 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 blah. So, what was his intent? And even the intent, like even like let's say Sunday dinner, maybe、right. the mom doesn't have a great relationship with his partner, and maybe the mom insults the partner, so the partner doesn't want to go. But then his intent is to see the mom, and also to create a bridge for the two to get together. If that's the case, then he might want to solicit her opinion as to how they might want to get together, and then he could spend time with his own on his mom. That's separate from that. Give the partner the choice of how she wants to build, if at all, that relationship. Okay, I, I, that that makes sense. The situation's a little bit different, and I can't.、Uh, that makes sense. Okay, great. Well, I think it's great that you were able to have this conversation with him, and I. And this is the beginning. This is planting the seed. Being in conversation is the first step to creating more awareness within ourselves and in others. So, thank you for doing that, and thank you for being part of this conversation. My pleasure. I'm, I'm learning a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast@gmail.com with your questions.